Hello, this is Derek Duncan, and welcome to episode 19 of the Feed the Ball podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Tim Liddy. Pete Dye is responsible for starting or elevating the careers of a large number of prominent golf course architects and shapers, including Tom Doak, Bill Corr, and Rod Whitman, to name just a few. All of them know Dye well, but almost no one else has worked as long or as closely with Mr. Dye as Tim Liddy, a fellow Indianan who joined Dye in 1993. Liddy has been with Dye on projects now for a quarter century, joining him in design, project management, master planning, and shaping. Over this time, Dye became like a father to him, while the two together crafted such prominent courses as Nima Colon Woods, Bull Rock, Wintonberry Hills, and many more. Due to their proximity and longevity, I'm not sure anyone has as deep an insight into the way Pete Dye designs, his beliefs, his reasoning, his artistry, as Tim Liddy does. He certainly, at the very least, knows how to explain it clearly and illustratively, as he does here. While steeped in the philosophy and style of Pete Dye, Liddy's own work is original and shows a broader variation in aesthetics and presentation, while maintaining devotion to hands-on construction and the gradual development of ideas on-site. The impressive portfolio includes new designs at places like the Trophy Club and Rock Hollow in Indiana, respected redesigns at the Landings in Georgia and at Princess Anne Country Club in Virginia, and building nine holes at Harrison Hills to accompany William Langford's existing work from 1923. It took us roughly two months of back-and-forth scheduling to finally find the time to hook up, but the wait was well worth it. Tim's a fascinating, intelligent, and candid person who knows how to give as good as he gets. It was a real pleasure to talk to him, and I know you'll enjoy our conversation. Once the Masters hits, every golf club in the world starts thinking about their golf course. So it's a busy time for golf architects. Is, is that, does, do you think it really has something to do with the Masters, or is it just springtime? I mean, talking to other golf architects, the wintertime is pretty dead, which is nice. It's a nice break. But then, yeah, I think Augusta just gets everyone thinking about golf for the first time in a few months. So I notice it completely so yeah well it's good for business at least that's right <laughs> and again it's nice to have a break at this age of my career it's nice to have breaks in the winter you act like you're, um, you act and, like you're old you're not that you're not that advanced <laughs> and you know the 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 interesting thing too about that work schedule is you would think you would work in florida in the winter and up north in the summer but it doesn't work that way you work you work in the summer in both places because you, they want to do the work in Florida when people are not there. Mm -hmm. And you also need to sprig it, sprig the uh, Bermuda grasses in the summer when they'll take off. So you're really busy in the summer. And again, in the winter, you've got, you've got some relaxing time. Unless you're master planning, you know, hopefully you're doing some master planning, preparing you know, drawings for permits and so forth. Yeah, get that office work time in when it's when there's snow on the ground and you don't have to travel as much. That's what being home is good for. That's right. Yeah, And re reacquaint yourself to your family. <laughs> yeah, I'm imagining in your business you can go uh, uh, periods of time where you don't see them. And so they value, they value it a lot when you're at home, at least for a little while. Then they probably want you out of there if you're there for too long. <laughs> I've been married 42 years, so my wife will quickly say, don't you have some place to go, you know? So, uh, but that's a good relationship. That's right. And 
but that is one of the toughest parts about the business is that you, you know, if you love golf, if you have a passion for what you do, you want to be there as much as possible. And so you're away from home. And luckily, it's, it's fit well into my career. I've got two kids, and of course, they're older now, and uh, I've been able to, a lot of my work was in Indiana when they were younger, so it worked out well for me. How old are they now? They're in their mid-30s. Oh, okay. I've got four, I've got four grandsons. Oh, that's so. beautiful, yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that is nice. You get to that point when you can travel guilt-free, you know, when they're, when they're older. I've got two young children they're like seven and eight so my ability to travel the last few years has really been not ex- non-existent so i kind of i mean i like them to stay young i love them but i'm also kind of looking forward to them growing up a little bit more so i can get back out on the road <laughs> yeah it's a it's a balancing act it really yeah, is for sure well tim when i think of you and what i've known about you you know or even when i've seen videos of you on television or read anything about you it's always you know tim liddy a protege of pete die pete die is the mentor you're always almost always associated with pete die do you feel like you're at this point in your career now when it's time just to be tim liddy and not us not just somebody attached to pete die do you feel that way you know absolutely i do but at the same time I'm okay with it. This whole label, you know, it, to me is more of an ego marketing thing than it is just doing, you know, good golf, golf course architecture. So, you know, as long as I get a, another job down the road, that's that's more important than, than, and I guess that's part of it, you know, to be Tim Letty or to be a Pete Dye protege. You know, Pete's helped so many guys in his career. I'm just one of of, of many. So... I'm happy to be in that family tree, but, but uh, that's a marketing thing that I guess the artistic side of me says, if you just go out and do great work, you know, more work will come no matter what you're called. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. And you mentioned it. He's been influential in so many people's careers. Uh, you know, he's gotten so many guys into the business and they've gone out on their own. How did, out of all those guys, how did you in particular become so close to he and Alice? Oh, good question. I I would guess because we have a we're both Midwestern guys. I think we have that Midwestern uh, smartass <laughs> sense of humor that 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 we really had such a great time and still do over the last you know couple decades. So I think that's a big part of it. But um, he could give me uh, you know a lot of a lot of crap, and I knew that he was just kidding me. Where probably a lot of people couldn't read between the lines i had a very tough upbringing from my mother and pete and alice are very direct and blunt about that and and i guess the other piece of that in architecture school you go through a critique program where you lay your work out and you know four or five professors critique your work and you know just cut it to to shreds and that's how pete likes to work you know he likes to say well you know that i like this but i don't like this this and this Let's try, you know, let's try something else. So, you you know, a sensitive person doesn't understand that that's not to take it personally. And I always got that. I mean, I, that's how you get better. And I think the perfect, so that's, he's taught that, I think, to a lot of, a lot of his protégés on how to do, you know, good, good golf course architecture. The process, mm-hmm. you know, the process of editing, of being on site, um, you know, continually looking at it. 
I mean, when you see that he's changing his work, you're okay with, okay, you want to change my work? Sure, that's good. And it's, a, it's, it's almost, as you know, golf course architecture at its best is a sculptural exercise. And so when you're sculpting out in, in the dirt, um, or it's, uh, it's easy to change it. Uh, contractors don't, don't understand that. No, for sure. Yeah, that, that's a big thing. We talk about that on this show all the time about, and a lot of the guys I've talked to, yourself included, are came up with Pete or for people that worked under Pete and that idea of molding golf courses in the field and not being devoted to a plan on a piece of paper is the, the what they believe, and I think you believe too, makes separates great golf courses from lesser golf courses. Yeah, no question. And, um, I, you know, then that's the fun part of the business it's the it's what we all do everything else for is to be out there doing that so uh you can't drag me away from a site when we're out there building a golf hole it's too much fun yeah yeah i think getting back to pete for a second you know for somebody that's so famous arguably over the last 40 years the most if anybody was going to know a golf architect it was going to be pete die i don't know that anybody really has a feel for who he is as a person what does he you mentioned that you know you guys could give each other shit and and you had a similar uh, sense of humor or understanding because of where you come from but what is he what else is he like as a person he's a true you know he's a true gentleman um a, a couple examples let's see the first example would be you know anytime you would fly with him there'd always be an entourage of, of a couple you know, to a dozen people following us around, and, and I'm, I've probably roughed something in for him so that when he comes, he can come and look at it and critique it and edit it. And um, <laughs> it's another, it's a long story, but he has a famous story that he tells. We have time this, if you want. Uh, okay, okay. Well, um, there's, a, there's a very famous golf course that um, everyone raves about the greens. I don't want to name any names. And there was a guy named Amos Jones who came in and top-dressed all these greens for many, many years with a tractor and a big box blade. Box blade's about eight foot in width. So any detail on a green uh, over time is going to just get wiped out. And the greens, get, the greens have gotten very flat and very soft. And everyone says, oh, these are the greatest greens in the world. And Pete would say, well, those are Amos Jones greens. They aren't some other famous architect's greens. So Amos Jones is kind of a code word for us. Mm -hmm. So, so, so walking around the site, and again, you got a dozen people, owners, uh, golf pros, superintendents, and I, let's say I've laid out something and he hates it, you know, that, which happens, right? He, I've laid out a green complex and a bunker here. And, you know, I always got, uh, I was always trying to do something a little different just to see his reaction, you know, and to see if, uh, if he liked it or not, or, Hey, that's something we haven't done. Let's try it. So I, I, I didn't mind, you know, going off a little bit every once in a while. So, so anyway, so he would stand there and look at it, a dozen people around, and he'd look at me and say, what are you doing here, Amos? And I knew <laughs> right then I was in big trouble. I knew that he hated it, but no one else knew, and we could just move on. And, I, you know, then later in the plane going home, he would just, you know, he would really give me the critique. <laughs> but it was... So we have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of... It's a nice way to get kind of your work rejected just with one word. You don't have to uh, be dressed down <laughs> in front of everybody. And it shows you what a gentleman he is, you know, and, and that he, 
didn't say what the you know what the hell are you doing here? This is the worst thing I've ever seen. Which he would say later in the airplane, he would just say, you know, what are you doing here, Amos? And and you know, enough said. Well, would he, would he go into ideas with uh, or into projects with kind of at least at some level of a conceived idea of what a green or a green complex should look like? Or because when he looked at your work, always. he must have always he must have had something in mind, and you were not getting there with what you did. Well, it was mostly uh, a lot. I mean, I would test him on things just again, just for the fun of it, I guess, more than anything. Uh-huh. And that um, he, he liked to, you know, you, I'm sure your listeners and you know about the line of charm and you're always trying to break that line. And he would always like to break that line of charm by bringing bunkers or a hazard in from the sides, always from the sides. And then he'd turn around those hazards. And I think that's evident in, all, in a lot of his great golf courses. He, he really didn't like to put anything in the center of a fairway and split a fairway. So I would try that every once in a while if the, if the land dictated it or just really fit to my eye. And he would always reject it, almost always. <laughs> so, so that was uh, um, something that we'd always play with. Um, and he would, um, but yes, we would sketch out greens before, you know, all the time. On planes, usually you have a lot of dead, dead time. So we would sketch out greens, green complexes, uh, how they fit into the routing. But they're just sketches. They're not, they're not uh, you know, working drawings. They're just concept sketches. Right. How did, how did you meet Pete? What was your first interaction with him? I was, uh, I was working for a large engineering company, 200-man engineering company, as a landscape architect, land planner. Uh-huh. And he was, uh, he was hired to do the golf course in this housing development. This was in the uh, early 90s, and um, they said, can you work with this? This guy doesn't do any drawings. Can you work with this guy? You, we need someone to do the engineering drawings and the, and the sketches so that we can tie it into the housing. And I said, who is it? And he goes, Pete Dye. I said, of course. And so, I, so we worked together on that project. In fact, the day that we met, he said, now I'm working at the Ocean Course in Kiowa. If you want to do these drawings, you're going to have to stay in my condo at the ocean course and do these drawings while I'm working on the golf course. I said, I'll be there tomorrow. And I, I'm sure I was. And, and again, so to draw, you know, the, the very first golf course and to do the grading drawings, he had to walk me through every golf hole. You know, here, no, this is what I'm thinking. This is what, I, so in about six months, I felt like I had gotten a master's degree in golf course architecture. I bet. Right. I mean, yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. And, it, and, um, you know, over time, Time, then you know you keep learning keep learning uh and a lot of times especially in the field you think you would think that what he's doing was spontaneous but then i'd realize later on that he and alice had probably talked about it you know every evening for a week mm-hmm. but he would just throw it out there and you would think wow where'd that come from that's that felt spontaneous right but it usually wasn't it usually wasn't when you work, you know, you've worked with him on so many projects for so long and have been so close to him. Where does, where does his influence creep into your work and wh- how, do you, how do you separate all the, everything that you've learned from him and maybe the way he thinks from your own individual thoughts and design ideas? Well, I, uh, let's talk about Pete first. I think Ross was a big influence on, on Mr. Dye when it came to those green designs. You know, I think Langford and Raynard on on how the strategy and the bunkers look and fit. 
I think influenced him. He did a few McKenzie greens at Cricket Stick, mm-hmm. but kind of but kind of went another direction that way. And um, you know, of course, Scotland, that whole influence of how he designed bunkers and and the blindness of Scotland and how he has used that. So those influences, I think, were key to him. And and of course, I am probably ninety nine percent of that same influence, and I'm very proud of that. And I. I, I know I can do that work and be very good at it, but I always I always fall back to some of McKenzie's um, camouflage work, where where you have bunkers that are on two holes away and they tie into the to the fairway that you're playing. So I, I try and bring more of that in, or I try and also do. It's easy to take a peat die waste bunker and exaggerate it and do a force perspective, so a golf hole looks like it's. 500 yards long when it's only 200 yards long. So I guess my background in architecture school has given me more of how to warp perspectives and, and have fun with that. And I think Pete was more of a, uh, you know, functional architect. You said it's easy to take a, a bunker and position it to make the hole look longer or, you know, than it is. Is it easy? That seems like it's a, a, a trick of a, of a master architect. It's, I don't think everybody can pull that off. Well, that's nice of you to say, but I think it's, uh, it's you know, a waste bunker affords you that opportunity to really exaggerate the, that in, in both ways, either to make a hole shorter or longer. And uh, it's, you know, it's what we do. So it doesn't seem special. I mean... We, I love doing it, but it doesn't seem like it's impossible to do. It's well, I've seen it done ineffectively enough times. <laughs> but Pete would foreshorten, you know, he would use foreshortening. He would hide the approach, uh, you know, bump up a, and hide other pieces that would really, you know, at the. I don't think Pete gets enough credit as an artist as well. I I think his artistic eye is is really really good. That uh, that's an interesting point. I I, I guess I've thought of that on some level but not fully formed it or said it like you do i i it is interesting that he doesn't get the same credit as an artist he's he's kind of looked at more of a of a uh, strategic tactician and he has kind of this house style of design if you will that kind of you can see uh, this played out on a number of courses different setups and whole structures but his artistry isn't is not really talked about why is that I don't think people understand it very well. Um, the, um, for an example, I'm trying to think what hole it is. It's probably seven at Long Cove. There's a lot of, lot of movement in the front of the green, um, all over the place. But there's a very sharp contrast piece, I would call it, or you know, a flymo piece in front of the green that that really offsets the, the where you need to hit your shot. So artistically, he's telling you as a golfer, oh, oh there's a bit of a, a shadow line there where everything else is soft. That focuses your eye. It, it, uh, it tells the golfer where to play. I, I, another big piece of that to me is, uh, you know, we're kind of in the realm of no one wants any lines on the golf, golf courses, right? You don't want grassy lines. You don't want, you just want it to be natural and, and contours. And Mr. Dye I don't think would be, everybody's would, getting that message, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, right. But 
But, but Mr. Dye would take those lines and make them always effective, whether it's a grassy line, a bunker line. Um, uh, they always would direct your eye to whatever he wanted to direct your eye to. It would take your eye to the green. It would take your eye to the landing area. So there's a lot of artistic thought that it's a functional artistic, but it's, but it's working that way as well as I think he's always the best, especially in the South, for using textures, different grasses, different coloring. Um, and I think he learned that again from, from uh, Scotland and the different textures. You know, you go down south, you got Bermuda on Bermuda on Bermuda. Mm -hmm. He was one of the first guys to take Bermuda and then in the rust use uh, a different, more coarse grass, uh, St. Augustine, for instance, that really helped define uh, the fairways better. Um, I, I guess one last piece I would say, because Harbortown is this week, when you're talking about art and sequencing or experiencing golf, you know, he really had to fight to get the last two holes out on 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 the on the sound mm -hmm. the original routing i don't know if you've played it but yeah it's kind of odd people don't realize you never finish at the clubhouse no, it's right you're, you're like a mile yeah. it's a cart ride. right so the yeah so the original routing stayed in the trees and just returned to the clubhouse and i think instinctively he realized i need a grand finish i need i need a sequence where you're compressed for most of the round and then you come out to calabogie sound and you're just released you know that compression release mm -hmm. To 17 and 18 and i just think that's just a i think that gets lost on on a lot of people on how great that routing is and how how important that is to the process to the playing of the golf course enjoying the golf course on that golf course in particular if if he'd not been able to get the holes out on the sound they would return through the forest and it really wouldn't it would have been very hard first of all for that golf course to stand out nationally for it to be a, the spectacle that it was when it was televised and thirdly it would have been even on that at that resort it would have been difficult to make that golf course stand out because all the other courses weave through the forest on Hilton Head so that was a I, that was a master stroke to get those holes in a completely different area on the island than anything else was absolutely and and he had to fill the fairway on 18 he had to fill that whole entire area to get that golf hole built there. Mm -hmm. And days before permitting would not, you know, not allow you to do that. Right. You know, Pete said before <laughs> that when he was just getting into the business, he looked at the dominant architect of the day, which was Robert Trent Jones, and saw the kind of the style of a Trent Jones course and what everybody was buying. And after his trip to Scotland, and I may have this, you know, I think that story changes slightly over the years, but he said he wanted to go a completely different direction. And instead of going right. large greens, he went small. And this was kind of the time, I think right around, right before Harbor Town, and, and did the small uh, handcrafted features around the green, a different type of shaping, different shot, shot values. And that was really revolutionary at that time. It was it made him stand out, and it probably got him a lot of business and therefore a lot of fame. And then he kind of slowly developed that theme over the years. And then I mentioned the I used the word house style a little while ago, and I don't mean that in a necessarily in a negative sense. But you do can look at his courses since that time, you know, getting into the eighties and nineties, where you do see a lot of repetition in the way that par fours and par fives for instance are laid out or angled greens against water hazards is that something that was ever addressed or spoken about between you two or you may disagree and you may disagree with what i'm what i my my analysis of that 
Oh, yeah, I, I've got a couple of points on that. Um, sure, I would get frustrated with that, and but not too too bad too much because Pete was always great about saying, "I'd say, Pete, I got this chance to do this golf course, you know, over here. Do you care if I take six months and go do it?" And he'd say, "No, no, you know, go. That's what everybody wants to do." And then if you know if I ran out of work, I could come back, and he'd say, "Oh yeah, you can help me with this." So I was never frustrated because I could always go do my own mm-hmm. thing. And if you look at some of my work. Especially, you'll see that I've gone many different directions depending on what the site dictated. But okay, on be on on being hard on an artist who develops a style over a lifetime that they really like, and it's a brand new style. And I'm, you know, I I'll compare him to Picasso. You look at a Picasso, you can tell that it was a Picasso, and no one has ever complained that you know I'm getting tired. He's drawing that bowl the same way, you know, ten times. So, Mr. Dye worked his entire career, developed uh, a vocabulary of architecture that he, that he really loved and believed in. You know, and it's new and it's different. And it can, I can explain to you how it came about, but uh, when, you develop, when you take your whole lifetime to do that, you're not going to, you know, okay, let's do, uh, you know, eroded-looking bunkers now because he didn't like it. So, he was very strong about Tim, I don't like that. You know, this is what I this is what I like. This is what I want to do. So I got it, and I I really appreciate it. So does that make sense? No, absolutely. I mean, it's you admire. I mean, first of all, he created. You're right. He created that style, and it would be too much to ask him. And it was genius. I mean, it was it really changed the way golf courses looked in a way. And it would be almost too much to ask somebody to have a stroke of genius more than once in their career, you know, to change the course <laughs> of architecture. He did it once, right? So I, I know right. I know what you're I know what you're saying. And I think the and that's why I mean it's not really a criticism. It's an observation. But it works. I mean these are these concepts that he uses and maybe that's not even the right word, but they're strategically sound. There's a reason for it. I mean they they work well on the ground. And at the same time, I would, you know, I would beat myself up as well in terms of if I'm a project architect on his job, I'm going to lay out a skeleton of the golf hole that I know he likes. And I'm not probably going to deviate a lot of that because, because I don't want to get yelled at, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you see a Pete Dye, Pete Dye golf course that, you know, he was there and he designed it every, you know, every day, he, he takes more liberty with that with that basic framework than than a Tim Liddy or whomever else a, a Lutsky could do. Um, so I would say that if you look at, at Pete Dye, Tim Liddy, it's probably a little more toned down than what he would do. And golf has changed since he did his best work too. You know, all we're all trying to make him fun and playable, and not scare everybody to death. So, so I I think it's, you know it's valid to. And I criticize myself for that, but it's a very valid observation. The other thing I want to touch on, Derek, that that uh, when you talk about how he changed golf course architecture, and it's just a, it's just another level of thought that I don't think your average listener hears about is in the '60s, '70s, and '80s. A bulldozer was the main piece of equipment to build a golf course, and a bulldozer gives you a certain slope unless you really work hard at it, of maybe a 10% slope, which looks so artificial to everyone's eye that, you know, we've got all these zillions of golf courses built during that time. 
where everything is 10% artificial. You know, everything looks artificial. Doesn't look, in nature, something is either cut by water, which is a very sharp line, or it's blown by the wind, which is a very soft line. And a dozer gives you that medium line, which, which looks artificial. Mm-hmm. So I think Pete, again, instinctively figured that out. And I think the classic, the old classic guys that we all love, they didn't have dozers, you know, in the 20s. So what would you do? You'd shovel it by hand, and the dirt just would just fall. It's called the angle of repose. So that's the, so you get that sharpness, or they would just rake it out by hand forever, and it'd be very soft. And you get the contrast. So that that's some of the artistic piece, again, that, that Pete brought to, I think, brought back to golf course architecture. Sorry, if I, I'm getting too excited. No, I, this is exactly the this is exactly what we talk about here on this program. It's it's terrific, and in, I kind of wanted to get around to this this topic. Um, I think that what happened may and maybe my timeline's off. You could correct me, but beginning probably around the 1980s, and maybe it was after uh, Sawgrass, and maybe after PGA West, when it, Pete's kind of fame was was relatively high. I mean, he was. The only architect at that time, maybe Trent Jones, that was, you know, in magazines or they talked about on television. I remember being a kid and hearing about Pete Dye and seeing Sawgrass and PGA West, you know, and thinking, wow, this guy's like the coolest badass. I would love to play one of his golf courses, you know, so he had a certain amount of celebrity. And I think other architects of that era were looking at him and looking at his design ideas, but taking the wrong lessons from them. You know, they they went and I'm, I, you know, I'm using they kind no, of, you're right. you're right on, and they're saying, well, we're going to, exactly. we're going to use bulkheading. We're going to build up greens. We're going to uh, build deep, you know, right, pot bunkers right. when really his, what you're saying is his greatest contribution or, or alteration is, is wrestling shaping away from large machinery and getting it back to that more small detailed handcrafted form, which is really evident when you go and look at his golf courses the level of small micro detail in the putting services and surrounding the putting services and which was completely being missed in favor of, you know, people idolizing water hazards and bulkheading. Yes. And there's, a, there's another layer to this that, uh, that you'll, that you'll love. You, you take the TPC course, uh, you know, as flat as, you know, Kansas, right. Mm-hmm. The, the entire, so how did he develop definition and overlap, you know, just as McKenzie would take series of bunkers and overlap. What did Mr. Dye do? Okay, he he developed planes, planes that overlap each other. What's a plane? Like a horizontal plane. So if you look at some of the golf holes at TPC, you see you see water. There's one plane. You see a bulkhead with a waste bunker. There's another plane. You see a fairway a little higher. That's another plane. You see a green that is at a different elevation. That's a fourth plane. And then you'll see bunkers behind the green. That's a fifth plane. So you're looking at five horizontal planes that give you great definition. Very, and again, it's a very functional thing that he was doing. But uh, how genius is that? I mean, I think it's phenomenal. And no one sees that. I don't know why. Well, I'm, Does that make I'm sense? I'm glad you brought that up because that was w- exactly where I was going to go next. I've heard you say uh, in an interview before or read 
you said that Pete Dye was the the greatest architect who, from a horizontal perspective, designing horizontally. And I and you started to explain it just now. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What is what do you mean by, in a broader sense, horizontal design versus, I guess, the opposite would be vertical design. Yeah, that's a different that's a different point. But um, uh, so the point I was making about a horizontal layout of a golf hole is that when you look at a Pete Dye golf hole horizontally, it's always laid out correctly. There's always enough room to play golf. The fairway is the right width. The bunkers are located to the sides. You know, we did so many uh, poor golf housing golf courses, you know, in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. where, where horizontally, the layout just doesn't work. You know, you're heading to a 20-foot area over water and homes are on the other side. I mean, we've all seen, you know, poor, poor golf holes done that way because they were forced by a developer or they just they weren't there enough to make it correct. And with a Pete Dye golf course, you know, he has a great engineering side to him as well. Horizontally, they always laid out, you know, well, perfectly, so that when you played the golf hole, there was room to play golf. Does that make that's that's what I mean by horizontal layout? But when I'm talking about horizontal planes and TPC, mm-hmm. that's that's just developing those planes. I don't know how else to to say those layers, those birthday cake layers, and and the sharper he made, and I th- I think some of it what is is how he sees, but the sharper he made those planes, they the more distinctive they 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 appeared. I've never thought about. It it exactly that way and it's really it sounds like i mean it's that's the trick on a flat site right to make exactly and exactly. it's what's missing in in 95 percent of the courses on flat sites i mean they it's a flat piece of land and oh. the golf course plays flat i've I'd never really thought about how how to you know you know it when you see it but how do you create that relief and and you're talking about doing it in planes now is is that first of all you have to be intelligent and have an artistic eye going back to the artistic, you know, is underrated artistic eye. But is that also a function of budget? Do you have to have enough money to be able to create those layers? I would think, sure. I would think there's, that's part of it. Um, but that's an architect's job too. You know, it's a fight is the fight to make it good. And, and it's always a constant fight because clients, clients don't have that vision. So that's something, you know, that's, that's part of the battle. Um, and, you know, at the same time, when you look at TPC, okay, you have these big flat planes that he's developed. Then you have the handcrafted bunkering, you know, that, that is, uh, you know, juxtaposed against all of that. So, you know, that's what, it, and it's like, wow, that's a weird looking, you know, that's where the first time you look at those golf holes, you go, that's, that's weird. But it's, it's a vocabulary that he developed. It's totally from, from you know, trying to. I'm sure he was going. You know, this is this is too boring. It's just it's just Bermuda on Bermuda. I've got to get some detail here, some levels of interest. And I don't think you could do that unless you devote your your entire time to to exactly. being there to to paint those layers after layer after layer, and then rip it down and then build it back up and rip it down and build it till it's right. just right. Yeah. The other piece of that is is. You know, you look at a Pete Dye golf course, and probably every bunker is a different size and shape. So he'd have huge waste bunkers. Then he'd have a, you know, a little dime pot bunker on the same golf hole. So that, you know, that contradiction gave a lot of memorability to to each individual golf hole. You know, in the 80s and 90s, 
uh, it's easy to beat up on these guys, but you know, I could see an architect out and the shaper would build one bunker and, the, and an architect would probably say, that looks good. Give me 30 of those, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where, you know, every bunker is unique on a Pete Dye golf course. What do you think of the TPC course? I love it. I think it's, I think it's one of his best works. Uh, you know, it's, it's like children, but uh, because he started with, you know, he was in a, he started in a swamp on a flat piece of ground. Uh, that's, I think that's so impressive versus taking, you know, the ocean course, which is a beautiful piece of ground and, and making it work, which is a great golf course. But, um, the frustrating thing about me and, and tournament players club is that the original conception of that golf course was more of a pine Valley look. And, and over time it's become an Augusta look. Mm. So yeah, early photographs you know, that, show a real, real rough, scruffy aesthetic. Right. Right. So the inmates have controlled the asylum a bit, you know, um, the terror pros complaining. I know the greens were overcooked and they have redone the greens countless times, but, uh, I, I would like it better, I think, and I think it would fit the Rota better if it was had its more of its uh, uniqueness. Although it's pretty unique now. And you, you like to play it? Oh yeah, I think it's hard, but uh, I've only uh, probably uh, need to play. I just think it's it looks so narrow from the tee for me, and I can't you know I have a hard time hitting fairways, so that's my only issue. You know, it's it always it always I always scratch my head when I hear people criticize the golf course, uh, and there are plenty uh -huh. of people that do, and they're entitled to their opinions, and you know everybody has a different subjective aesthetic. Uh, I love the course, and even though it's ranked, you know, on the rankings, it's always very highly ranked. I almost think it's his most underrated course. I, I think there's so much mm -hmm. genius there that he escapes the you know the common pers perspective of it. It, and, it, it, you know, it begins to be involved in that whole discussion of a tournament golf course versus a member's golf course. Mm. So, or, you know, uh, tournaments, tournament golf is a whole different animal than the golf that we all enjoy and play. What has been your favorite project that you've worked on with, with Pete? They've all been a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I went up to, I went up to Whistling Straits during its construction probably 20 or 30 times. And I can't say that I did anything. I didn't make any decisions. I just kind of shadowed Pete, you know, helped probably nod my head when he had an idea. Yeah, that's a good idea, whatever. But uh, I didn't, so I, I, I don't want to take any credit for it, but it was such a great experience. And Mr. Kohler, is, it was such a great client. Uh, and their seeing their relationship uh, between a great client uh, and Pete was it was very enjoyable. What do you, do you like that golf course? I do. I do. I like it a lot. I'll, I'll never forget because it's all we, you know, I get it that it's all, you know, contrived. It's all built by, you know, it's built. I mean, when we started, it, there was an airport on that side. It was <laughs> that flat. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I'll never forget standing with Mr. Dye the first day on this flat side and Mr. Kohler pulls up in his Jaguar or whatever it was and, <laughs> And, and Mr. McGuire says, what do you want to do here? You know, I mean, that's, that's how, that's all, you know, we don't know what we're doing, right, until we get started. And Mr. Kohler says, I want it to look like Ireland. And, and he, Kohler turned left. That's and it. Pete turned to me. <laughs> yeah, and Pete turned to me. He goes, 
does he have any idea that there's 60 foot dunes, you know, in Ireland? And of course I didn't say anything. So we flagged, I think it's the 12th hole today, the right side of it. And he flagged it and said, okay, cut 30 feet here and put that 30 feet to the left side of the golf hole and we'll have 60 feet. And I'll be back next week to look at it. And that's what that's how we started. Just one one whole one place at a time, just cut and cut and pile. Right, right. But of course, we had a routing laid out. We had a lot of thought. We had, you know, he had a lot of discussion. Like I said, it wasn't. It always seemed spontaneous to him, but it never was. Yeah. But that, you know, we went right over the. He he heard probably what he needed to hear, and instead of cutting ten feet, we cut it thirty feet. I can't imagine how how happy that made. Pete, <laughs> just to have that direction, right, and then he exactly. drives off. <laughs> right, that's right. That's right. The joke around Wilson Straits is uh, that Kohler gave Pete Dye an unlimited budget, and Pete blew it. He blew the budget. <laughs> you no, know, and, and that is so untrue. I mean, Mr. Kohler is very budget conscious, so that's that's never the case. Um, that's always a fight, and not a fight, but it's always a, a discussion. Urban legend. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's a fun saying, right? It's a fun saying. So one of one of your projects on your own was an addition to Harrison Hills, which was a, the nine-hole uh, William Langford course in Indiana, and it was on two different parts of the property. And you were you were hired to build nine new holes. I'm wondering. I, w- I was hoping we could talk a little bit about that course and about William Langford. Did you do? What, what did you do to prepare for that course and, and for that project? Did you do some historical research, and did you need to familiarize yourself with Langford to try to find a theme there? I did, and it was before the Internet, so uh, it was harder then. So I, I, uh, Ron Witten is, uh, is a Langford guy, and so I asked him about Langford a lot. We talked about it. Again, I don't, um, I'd have to look at my dates, but would that be in the 90s? Anyway, so it's <laughs> pre-internet it must have been maybe uh yeah yeah um so that so times were different then and um and i I had a great respect respect for the golf course um i really thought it was it was awesome and it kind of introduced me to the idea of how langford would build with a steam shovel and and what that created and the look that that created in in terms of how that was different than what how a dozer builds a golf hole. Again, I'm going back to this: how the dirt falls and how you, how you rake mm-hmm. it. So, Langford would would take the steam shovel and they would sit it where the green side is, and then the steam shovel would just drag all the way around where the green is. And again, I don't. Sometimes he'd go deep and sometimes he wouldn't. And then they'd move the steam shovel somewhere else. So you get these you know these great rainer kind of looking. Uh, slopes off of grains or mcdonald and i'm sure langford was influenced by that um so it it was uh it was fairly easy for me to mimic that style the best i could my problem with that project is that the majority of the new nine holes was was on boring ground versus what langford had you know langford took the best property which he should have and did you know nine cool holes and half of my holes are on corn you know they were Mm cornfields So, you know, we tried the best we could, and, and, you know, Langford's greens were always so great. I, I really thought they were awesome, you know, really very, very, some of the best. Um, and, and I have mixed feelings about it in, in terms of I'd love to go back and tweak it. I think you could 
tweak it and make it even look more consistent. Again, working with a dozer and a dozer operator, you know, I had to, you know, say, get the dozer away from, the, you know, quit with the dozer, just pile up the dirt and rank it out. Uh, a lot of discussions that, that way. Um, so, uh, but it was, uh, so you were, I'm proud were of you it, not but completely I think happy with, be the, with the finish work. Is that what you're saying? Never. Yeah, I never am. Mm. Probably <laughs> never am. But That's yeah. a good way to be. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. So you can always go back and, and, you know, the best golf courses, as you know, you go back and, and tweak them. But it's been a, you know, again, I'm proud of it. And I'm, I'm proud of how I enter, you know, some holes you can't tell whether they're Langford or not. And I'm very proud of that. I wanted it to be at Langford course. I didn't want it to be a Tim Lennon course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did, what did you take away from that? Did you ever, I mean, you've spent so much time working, you know, with Pete and Pete has that, that look in a lot of his, his yeah. designs. Um, so I guess, I guess you probably were, would be more interested in projects after that to get away from that look, even though, you know, you had to try to mimic the Langford shaping and those big, strong shoulders. Yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah. I just wanted to, again, I wanted it to be great if it looked like, wow, this whole thing was built in 1922. You know, that, that would be, I think that adds more value to the client than anything else. Cause the clubhouse was very, you know, it fit the entire air as well. It's interesting. You said that you believe that Langford, you know, was aware and looking at Seth Rayner and the Charles McDonald stuff and, the, but they were, you know, they were contemporaries. They were working at the same time. So it's interesting to think of the, the cross influences that were happening even back in the twenties. You know, we mentioned that a lot of architects over the years have looked at Pete Dye and tried to kind of copy him. Rip off might be more of the right word, but you know, there's definitely an influence there, but those cross influences were happening back in the twenties. Absolutely. And these were all great golfers, right? That uh, were spreading the word of, you know, they were evangelists of spreading the word of golf all over the United States. So, so they probably played golf together at some time in their lives. And then they, you know, got into golf architecture. I don't know if Langford was part of that, but the very early guys definitely were. Yeah. What else did you learn about Langford? I thought one of the interesting things is he was one of the few guys who was designing golf courses in the 1920s and also was designing coming out, of, you know, on the back end of World War II. I think he was designing courses up until the 1950s. And I don't ever hear anything about the post-war Langford courses. I, I don't even know what they look like. Where if they were, if he changed his style, did you did you have you come across any of those late Langford courses? I, you know, I have reached, I have researched uh, and went and visited so many Langford courses. Not so many, but you know, half a dozen that were completely ob- obliviated. You know, they were, they were gone. They were gone. And my only guess is that. And I've talked to a lot of other architects, or and Ron, you know, other critiques of when you look at Rayner and, and Langford's work, it's so difficult. I mean, the bunkers are 20 feet deep. How did, you know, my first question is how did they mow those, mow those slopes right. in 1925? How did they do that? Um, and then how did these people play, play it? And of course, you know, these were all gentlemen golfers and only probably 50 guys played golf then on the, on the golf course. But, uh, so I think the difficulty of the, to answer your question, of the Langford look or golf courses, they were all just, you know, they were all mellowed out. Yeah. And then we had the terrible 60s, 70s, 80s where you would go in and do the, again, the bulldozer, you know, look. Yeah, it's just, so it's, that's, yeah, it's just, I'm, it's sad. Yeah, it's, sad. It's, very, it's, it's very sad. Well, you know, well, I guess there could, you know, there's always the possibility to save a lot of those features if you could find out what they were. I just don't, I'm curious, curious to know if, 
you know, a course that he built in 1952 looked like something he oh, would have I built see. in 1922 yeah. or if he did, if I he was, because, so. you know, the post-war architects, you know, were really going in a, a brand new direction. It was a start over for everybody. They weren't really trying to do anything like that was done in the 1920s. It was a different era right. in society and in culture. I don't So it would be interesting to know. I don't think Langford's really been explored as an architect the way, you know, Seth Rayner or McDonald or McKinsey or Flynn or Tilly have. There's probably a good book out there for somebody to write and explain all this to us. And it would be interesting for someone like you to write an article about, so to answer your question, did Langford start using a dozer instead of a steam shovel? And did that change the aesthetic of his look? You know, that's, that's a, a good question. So there'd be an interesting article to follow how equipment has affected the aesthetic of golf course architecture. Absolutely. Because yeah. I, I, I see it very plainly from the steam shovel to the dozer. With bulldozer dozers were very small to begin with, and now they're very large. To you know, the knuckle bucket in the last decade has changed golf architecture completely. You know, things that we used to have to do by hand and more expensive. You can take a knuckle bucket on a on a mini X, and and you know that's all guys do now. This younger generation, they take that knuckle bucket in there. It's phenomenal what they can do, especially with the eroded bunker edge look hmm. you know you can do that so efficiently with a knuckle bucket 20 years ago that's hard that was hard to do so that's changed so you go from the steam shovel to small dozers to medium-sized dozers to you know tractors to to today's knuckle budget bucket on a on a mini x you know what will what will happen that that has affected to me the aesthetic look more than anything which is understandable. Yeah, and in, in fact, you know, we've I had the conversation um, with Bradley Klein, and and I'm saying, you know, I was saying, I don't consider this the golden age of architecture. It's more of a neoclassical age because they're really just rediscovering things that were done in the past instead of creating things new. And Bradley said it's really a golden age of construction because, and that, that speaks to your point. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's neoclassical construction wise, but there's, I think building golf courses and doing so many things using the knuckle bucket, like you just said, that's where the, the real creativity is coming from. Not necessarily design, but in how they're built and in the shaping that seems to be like a a renaissance that's happening. I agree. I agree. And, uh, it's that detail that we all love. Um, and you know, it, it, I can see it in our work. You know, absolutely. You know, our our shaping is is uh, is more outside a bunker. Uh, you know, bunkers for Mister Die are pretty plain and pretty uh, you know flat sand, very plain. And then all the shaping that we do is outside in the grass areas, the overlap and the dimensioning. And we add a lot more of that now with a knuckle bucket than we did with a with a dozer. It's where you know the eroded bunker look you doing all that shaping inside the bunker and you know moving it adding movement to it within the sand Mm -hmm. but and and the other point about uh langford that i wanted to make uh concerning what you were talking never mind i'll think of it later okay let Um, me know if you if if it comes up i'd I'd love to hear (laughs) all right Uh, how how much time do you spend on machinery these days um i'm trying i might do a little more this summer uh I'm a mini X guy, so I'm not a dozer guy. I cannot do a dozer. I, you know, I, 
I'm, I'm different than most die people in that I came to Pete from the drawing side. So, so we talked a little bit about how I met him and he could see that I could draw really fast. That's one of, that's one of my little ta- skill, skill sets is I can do, a, you know, he can say, let's do this, this, and this, and I can draw it in front of him. So, you know, we could do 50 routings in a day without, without breaking a sweat because, you know, you're on trash paper or whatever and a pencil and, and I can draw the scale and get it very close. Um, and so I became a great tool for him. So I learned golf from him that way and then got into the construction from that side where most, most of, of Pete's guys, you know, came from the construction side up. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little different in that regard. So I, so of all projects that, you know, I've touched a lot of Pete's projects at the front end where then they've been handed off to other people, which, which is fine. But I'm, you know, my point is, uh, it's always a teamwork, I guess, is the point. But it's always Pete's ideas. Yeah, well, when you're on your own projects now, uh, do you have a team of, of young guys who are shapers like Pete always had? He always hire these young guys who didn't know anything and kind of teach them and train them. And who do you use for your shaping? Is it a similar process? You know, every job is different. Um, but yes, yes to all of that. Um, sometimes it just depends. Hey, are you available? Well, I'm available, you know, next month. Okay, well, then come. Uh, you know, Scotland is a great example of that. I did a, a golf course. I remodeled a Peter Thompson golf course in Scotland um, for Mr. Kohler. And, you know, you could get you could get a three-month visa, I think it was, or a, vac- or a tourist visa mm-hmm. for three months. And so I called all the best guys that I knew and said, do you want to come to Scotland? You know, you want to come to St. Andrews for three months? And, you know, every one of them said yes. So from James Duncan to to Dan Proctor, to Dave Axlin, to uh, Kai Franz, uh, or Kyle Franz and Kai Golby. I brought them all over there for three months, and and uh, uh, J- uh, James Duncan. It, it was just such a great experience. You know, we would, we would work all day, and then we would go to the Jigger Inn and talk golf architecture and do sketches at night. It was it was, it was a great Ooh, experience. Yeah. <laughs> to sit in on and that, that'd that, be great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And just, I mean, look at the talent I had on that job. So yeah, and that was the Duke's course. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So what was that like working in St. Andrews? You know, you obviously had the A team for shapers and the construction crew was in yeah. place, but well, yeah. that must have been a, a pretty thrilling time for you to go over there. It doesn't, you know, to build a golf course in St. Andrews is a dream come true, and it doesn't opportunities don't come up that much for an American to participate in that part of the world. Yeah, you know, pluses and minuses. Uh, pluses were just as you stated. You know, you're working in Scotland, one of the the home of golf. The, the you know the minus is uh, it, it's not a links course. It's not on the ocean. So and you're building it next to one of the greatest, if not the greatest, golf course ever. So you never it's never going to compete, right? It's never going to. Uh, so you've got to kind of. So I had had to think about. You know, we did the Heathland. We took the Heathland image to it, and 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 did those uh, eroded-looking bunkers that I think really set off the golf course. They're beautiful. Uh, yeah, and and really, that was the first time. I'd like to think that's the first time they were done in Scotland. You know, I went to the library at St Andrews. Not the first time in this generation. I went to the of course. I went to the library at St Andrews and pulled out all these great photos of the eroded bunkers of St Andrews old course. You know, back whenever. And, and took these to Mr. Kohler and said, here's the style. You know, we can combine this with the Heathland look. 
and get something distinctive for the Dukes. You know, we're not going to be a Lynx course. This is this is our this is what we can be. And he he loved the idea. Uh, but now I'm sure there's, you know, courses everywhere with eroded looking bunkers throughout Scotland. But I feel like we did it. We did it. You know, we were one of the first to do it. Plus, I had the guys that knew how to do that look. You know, um, they had been to, you know, with Core and Crenshaw, they had worked and, and developed that style very effectively. So, um, right. I mean, it, so it was a great experience. But I, again, it's frustrating because if it was, if you could pick that golf course up and put it, I don't know, somewhere. So it's not next to the best golf course in the world. It it get more recognition. Yeah, but it's distinct. It's enough. It's so far away from it, not uh-huh. not not physically, but in the style and the way it plays and appears that they can coexist very nicely. You know, if you did a if you were doing a links course right next to St Andrews or slightly inland or something, then you're really going to get compared to St Andrews. But that's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And of course, the Peter Thompson aspect, you know, aspect was awkward because uh he's such a great guy and was a you know won the won the open six times and here's you know some guy from indiana remodeling his golf course but uh what did you that was a that was a bit awkward was he around did you ever have to deal with he him came, yeah he came by and and we had a nice lunch and like i said he was a true gentleman and we kind of laughed about it like you know i offered that you know 20 years somebody will come and remodel my work yeah that's just how so so he got it. He was he was good with it. <laughs> yeah, some of his staff was not, but he he was fine with it. That, that's right. He could he could be the gentleman, and then he sends out the bulldogs <laughs> to do the dirty work. That's right. Um, that's right. So I'm curious to get your perspective on where we are, you know, in the in the world of architecture right now, uh, and specifically looking at the last 20 years, a lot has happened. We've seen a boon in uh, the opening of some of the greatest possible golf sites around the world in faraway places, and the development of some real I'll call it luxury golf. It's not accessible to most people, but it's brilliant. What's it been like over this period of time from your perspective, looking out on what's happening in the business, you know, or if you feel like you're looking at it from like within the Pete Dye world or on your own world, what's, what do you, what have you seen? How does it make you feel? Um, I, I, my view is probably very unique. I, you know, I'm a purist as probably your listeners are. So, I really, you know, a lot of the the country club for a day stuff has gone away, right? That the bad golf has gone away. Hopefully, um, yeah. It so could I, come back. I'm okay though. with, yeah. So I'm okay with that. I, I, you know, I have I don't have a lot of respect for the business of golf. I have a, you know, my heart is in 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 the joy of golf and the in the play of golf, and and I wish, you know, when golf first came to this country, no one. No one was trying to make a profit from golf. It was all about the game of golf. So I wish we could get more back to the game of golf and not the business of golf. I think the business of golf is hurting golf and for its own benefit. From the golf ball to golf clubs to you know, country club for a day kind of thing. It's they're all bad experience. They're all bad golf experiences. So so I and and it doesn't worry me that golf is not the most popular thing in the world. I think it that is aspirational. I like that part of golf. Um, so you know, I'm I'm sounding like an old fogey, but that's that's how I see it. I mean, is there anything better than playing golf with a caddy and you know through your buddies? And I think uh, that's you know, there's a lot of that going on now, and I think it's growing. I there's more caddy programs. There's more. Um, 
I'm sorry, a dolphin just came by, so it kind of messed me up there. But um, Wait, where are you right now? <laughs> um, I have a little condo on the beach in uh, Tampa, and, and I'm looking out on the ocean. I thought you, but, I thought um, you were in Indiana. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so uh, we all know that, you know, so we need caddy programs. You know, the, the golf cart is, is, is getting, you know, I, I was at a club just the other day where they're, they're getting new golf carts that have speakers uh internet you know it's like oh my god but you know it's, are those the greg norman the shark card or whatever those are called? no this was a private country club that i had remodeled in virginia beach oh. and uh it's very walkable golf course and 90 percent of the guys walk but so maybe it has to has to be more for everybody but i think we need caddies i think that's the biggest mistake we've we've really made we've lost that whole generation of golfers that understand the game, you know, for what it is, the game of golf and not the business of golf. So many kids now come into it from, you know, what they see on TV. You're a member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, and it, I'm assuming you are active and attend the meetings. Like, what are you guys talking about? And you can, I'll, since we're having this discussion, I'll set you to the side. But what's everybody talking about? Are they sitting around patting themselves on the back for all the good work they do, or are they? Do they see things the way that you do, with some some element of concern that they're not, you know, maybe they're not doing enough? Like, what's the vibe there? It doesn't seem like much good comes out of that. <laughs> okay, well, um, don't beat up on my society, but no, I'm just kidding. You can. Um, I'm, I'm on the membership committee, so uh, there's three of us on the membership committee. So I, I am active. I would say I'm trying to be active. Um, the value, and, and you guys got to understand, it's a very, very small society. It's 150 guys, okay? It's not 30,000 guys like the Superintendents Association. We don't have it. You know, the, you expect too much from, I think, 150 guys. So the value of of, of that society, though, is this. We, we all have very small firms for the most part. There's probably, you know, I'm, I work out of, my, out of my home as 90% of the guys do. There's one-man firms, two-man firms. There's not 20-man firms anymore. So when we get together, here are, you know, and we all have our, our friends and unfriends, but here's a dozen guys that they're the only guys besides my wife in the world that know, you know, what I go through, right? The interviews, the struggles with contractors, the, you know, the weather, whatever they are. So those are a dozen guys that I, that, that we have a great, you know, empathy for each other because we know how, how tough our, our life is, but at the same time, how much fun it is. So that's the real value of the society. Now, everyone has egos, and of course, they. I think we do a good job of, of keeping the ego you know, at the door when we come in and, and talk. And we have common issues in terms of liability or green construction or you know, drainage or wh- whatever. So those are always good resources as well. So that's, it's, it's, uh, I don't think we have time to deal with making the game great. You know, you, you have the USGA, you have the PGA, you have, the, you know, the PGA Tour. I mean, that's, we, we don't have, we can't do that. We're, we're just not big enough. You're picking on us and you shouldn't be, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And sure, we're all different. You know, there are guys that are more landscape architecture bent that like to do drawings and, and computers. And, you know, that's how they work. And, uh, you know, that I think those guys have gotten less. And I think more of the, the hands-on guys have gotten more involved. And, uh, and there's a combination of all of that. So everyone works a little differently as well. Um, so, so we're all different, but I, but again, it's I think it's a it's a valuable society for us just for the emotional support. I guess <laughs> I get that. It's a that's how it's I a big, see it. Yeah, yeah, the psychological soothsaying. But when it yeah. when it and does it, come down uh, to thinking about because you all do individually thinking about how you can make the game better through the work that you do do you feel that there's mostly commonality or do you have are there different people who have different ideas about what would make the game better uh when we talk about the game i think you know we disagree i think some you know there are there are guys more attached to the usga that say you know the golf ball is not the problem and then there are uh, there are some of us that, that I feel like the golf ball and you know the trampoline effect of the golf club is the big problem. So yeah, we we talk about it, uh, and we're trying hard as a society to come up with a response. Shortly, uh, we're meeting in Houston next week to kind of bat that out because uh, it's really affecting the courses in Scotland more than it is here in terms of tournament golf because they they're out of space. They're out of room, you know. You know the old course; they're using three golf courses now. So, so it's a it's a bigger deal in Europe than it is in the United States to this point. And so, I think the RNA is 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 going to sh- to push this subject more onto the USGA than than the other way around. And you know, Mike Davis has talked about it. I think I think they're really looking at it, but it's complicated. You know, it, it's very complicated. You know, everyone talks their own game. Right? Right. Every the PGA Tour has their priority. Everyone has their own priorities about it. But uh, the golf ball is going too far. And, but we've been saying that for what a hundred years. So yeah, it's always going too far. There's a lot more talk about it <laughs> right now this year, especially. And I don't want to get bogged down into a ball debate at all. Yeah. But I am okay. curious. All right. Does does it affect the way you design golf courses? Do you do you feel that you need to approach a project differently because of current technology? How does it affect what you do? It depends on the golf course. So if I'm working on a tournament golf course, as I have with Mr. Dye, yes, you know, 99% of the time, that's all we're talking about. If I'm doing a membership, you know, a country club golf course, it, it's not entering my mind. I'm worried about, you know, the last golf course I did uh, remodel, which I'm very proud of in Naples, Florida, over half of the golfers now in Naples are women. So tell me you don't design differently for that than you do. Am I worried about, you know, Dustin Johnson? No, I'm not, you know, on that project. Am I worried about him on the TPC or, uh, you know, whistling straights? Absolutely. And I don't, you know, what do you do? Making a course longer just plays into their hands, as, as we all know. So you gotta you gotta make them you know as Pete would say if you get them thinking you've won the game right, right already so so um, but as a rule you do as that a rule and, uh, angles uh-huh. as a rule do you need to build wider corridors or I think wider corridors for safety issues makes the game more enjoyable um, sure sure as I've as I've said maybe on to you or someone else before is you're not hitting the house now 
you know, adjacent to the golf course, you're hitting the house across the street <laughs> from the golf course. So yeah, you know, I've seen it. The happen. average players, right? The average player is not hitting it any straighter, or his handicap's not going down. He's just hitting it further left and right. Yeah. Uh, but you, but they love, you know, men especially love hitting the ball as hard as they can. Uh, so it doesn't affect my design a little bit. I mean, when I first started with the landing area, it was at 250. Then we went to 300. We had some bunkers at Nemecolon at 300 yards. VJ Singh came out in the high. It was just during the when he was number one in the world mm-hmm. on ex, on exhibition, and he and Pete. I'm standing there with VJ and and Pete, and Pete says, "Hit it over that bunker, VJ." And VJ flew it over a bunker it was 300 yards from that tee. He flew it over the bunker, and VJ took another golf ball and he threw it at Pete and goes, "This is the reason right here." So, so the next week, Pete built a bunker behind that bunker at 330 yards. Of course yards. he did. I love it. <laughs> do it. So, do it again, VJ. That's right. That's right. Well, you are somebody that that does care about making the game better in whatever way you can. A number of years ago, I don't know how many, a few years ago, you wrote a kind of an op-ed in, in Golf Week, and it was mostly about, I think it was after you'd come back from Scotland and worked on the Dukes course, and you were talking about the turf and how the t- Lynx turf makes the game more enjoyable, and if there was a way we could import that idea of agronomy into the United States, how it would not only make the game more enjoyable, but it could also help bring costs down as well. And it, at the end of the article, you said this, and I'm going to quote, we need to stop building artificial golf courses with cart paths, range finders, and yardage markers. If we drive our golf carts and play to yardages all day, why not just play to targets on a range? And of course, immediately, <laughs> I immediately thought, well, that's what we're doing with Top Golf now. We find in that, in that, yeah, that was predictive, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But then you also, yeah. then you finished by saying, to compete in today's society, golf needs to offer the antithesis of that culture, not a reflection of it, unquote. So, I mean, I think with that viewpoint, you have and will have, after people hear, hear or read that, a lot of, a lot of allies. That's a, I, I love that viewpoint, and I love the idea about trying to uh, import a Lynx style of playing surface that's a little more brown, a little more dry into the United States golf courses, and yet you see so little of it. And I, you know, here and there, some new courses are experimenting with it, but it's not anything that's really being developed or taken into the golf culture yet. I mean, what do we do about that? How can we, how can we, what's the step to take? Is it, can we ever get there? Well, it it reminds me of the point I was going to make about Langford and, and those, those very severe bunkers. It's the same point, I think. And that is, We've gone from a match play mentality to a mental, you know, a, a metal score mm-hmm. mentality. So, if it's a match play, which which no one realizes, but that's what we play ninety percent of the time, right? I'm going to beat my buddy. That's that's all I really care about. You know, in the United States, it's all a metal score. I got to post my score and and so forth. Well, uh, things got to be pristine. They got to be perfect because I don't want my golf ball to be someplace I can't advance it. Uh, so I think that's been a big problem to overcome, and whether we can or not, I don't know. That is, it affects golf course design more than I think anyone realizes. And that's why in Scotland, you know, it's, it's still uh, match play for the most part. They play metal in tournaments, and that's how they do their handicaps. But uh, anyway, it's match, going for match play was so much, you know, the golf course design was 
much more dramatic and much more nervy than it is today. It's all calmed down. So what I'm doing, so how, how has it affected, as you asked earlier, golf course design? The golf course I just did in Naples, although it is Naples, the most artificial you know, place in the world, uh, it is still an artificial golf course, but there's more width, it's more fun, and, and, I, and there's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of uh, bunkers and so forth on the golf course but it's hard to get into those bunkers. So it's a bit of the old Fazio thing where you, it's beautiful. You know, beauty is still important. It's more important, I think, than, than, we, than it was in the past. But beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You know, some like vanilla, some like chocolate. So. Why is beauty more important now than before? Um, because I think it's a stress reliever. It's a calming aspect in, in our society. Yeah. As simple as that. I think our society's gotten busier and busier. And, and, and you know that if, if you grabbed these people and, and you gave them a caddy and told them to walk around the golf course for three hours, they'd get it. They'd get it immediately. But you throw them on a golf cart with, with music blaring and, and you know, they don't, they don't have the opportunity to really enjoy the game. I mean, so how does it? How do you feel projecting into the future? What, what's the future of golf? Is it more golf carts with you know, videos and, and Bluetooth or is it, or is there any hope that we can get back to community courses where you can, you know, you, everybody's walking, it's, it's convenient. The holes are routed tight together. There's no rough, uh, <laughs> you know, for right. a long time in the, you know, seventies, eighties and nineties, as we've been talking about more and more of the same golf courses were being built and it was a bad model, but it was more like a feedback loop. Cause the more, the more people seem to respond and want that kind of golf, the more they got. What's, what's going to change us to get from, from that model and even where we are now, which is better, into more of an organic approach? Like you wrote in this story about the concept or the idea of, of links play and match play in Scotland and importing it with a different value of the turf, uh, placing a different value on the quality of the turf and, and playing match play walking. How do we get there? I, I hate to turn the table on you, Derek, but it's guys like you. It's all about education. Oh, you know, I'm out, I'm, <laughs> I'm out working in the dirt, so I don't have time. But, you you know, it takes guys like you and your podcast and articles. And, you know, uh, it's it's great what you're doing. So that's what it takes, education. Well, you, you're a golf course architect, and you have a little bit of say in this as well. Do you feel <laughs> – do you ever feel – I know – look, I know it's, it's a balance, yeah. right? Like you mentioned the yeah. society – Y'all need to work. You got to have jobs. It's tough. But how do you balance that need versus uh-huh. explaining or handling jobs in a way, or maybe the the, the client talking to the client yeah. in a way that's going to be good for the promotion of a healthy style of golf going into the future? I really see it happening, Derek. I really do. In terms of okay, right now I'm probably doing golf courses in Naples for a generation that's older than me, right? And they'll never get it. You know, that's, they grew up, uh, they're great generation people. Um, but they're, you know, they're a bit polyester world, right? <laughs> that's, that's, so they're never going to get it as much as, as, as my generation gets it a little more. And I get it a lot because of working with Mr. Die. your generation's getting it. So I, I'm very positive that, that it'll happen. And, and I think you'll have both, you know, I think, golf is diverse enough that you'll have both but i think you know what's happening 
uh, in Chicago, uh, with you, what you guys are doing with podcasts. I, I think, I think your generation is, I'm, I'm very hopeful about your generation, but I think it's a generational aspect. We, well, we, maybe we need to wait until some, some people, and, and I'm not that young, but people younger than me actually come into some money. We need developers who want to <laughs> support right. this kind of golf. That's, that's right. right. That's right. And some of it is um, in our society today, uh, you know, you can play when you're very young, but then you have a life and you really don't start playing again until you're probably 50. Now, that's how I've seen it in this last generation. And then these guys that are 50 and ladies that come into the game, you know, they want, you know, exercise is now a big part of it. And so walking is being promoted, even in Naples, in Florida, where it's hot. I see, I'm starting to see walking promoted. So, again, I'm very, uh, and country clubs have changed. It's not golf. It's not the main attraction now. You've got to have a fitness center, a pool, you know, casual dining, uh, so golf is just one aspect of that. And so people are more fit, I think. And I think uh, that will lead into what we're talking about on the golf course. Yeah, I think we're there. Because when you walk, yeah, when you walk, you see it's a, it's a totally different experience. I, right? Yeah, I agree. Of, and I, I think where our, our best hope lays in the near future are these handful of projects that come up around the country and there may be public courses or even municipal courses. There are a few in South Florida that are going to be redeveloped just really kind of run down places where the opportunity is there to go in with a really smart renovation. Uh, and I was just, uh, last week I was down in winter park in Florida and I, I'm right, sure you've heard of right. the winter park nine. I right. mean, I was, I kind of went in thinking, okay, this is overhyped. I mean, it can't be this good. Right. And right. I, I'm in the chorus now. I mean, I was fell in love with that style <laughs> of golf and that opportunity to do those types of things. It's, it's, seems fairly simple to do if you have a, a well, reasonable budget that you can do that at some of these uh, renovation projects around the country and that's where it might start i guess uh, i hope i'm hopeful again you know ax uh, dave axlin and dan proctor did the same thing at wild horse what 20 years ago oh, i love that place and you know they probably didn't make a penny on that you know they probably barely survived building that golf course in, in terms of they had so much passion for it you know, they work for the city at minimum wage, I believe, to make to to be able to build that golf course. And I think uh, uh, who are the two kids I know that did that? Uh, you know, they Keith probably Rabin, didn't make any money. Yeah, yeah. And and I've worked with Keith. Um, you know, they probably didn't make any money on it either. So uh, it's great for this younger generation. You know, speaking to someone that's a little older to say, hey. This is what I want to do with my life, but will they really do it? You know, will they really sacrifice the sacrifice that it takes to do it? Um, which I think that's a great example of that they did. They took that sacrifice uh, to do that. But you can't. It's hard to make a living, you know, doing that. Yeah, that's, there's the catch. It always comes back to money, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you like the, anyway. They'll do fine, I'm sure, but. Uh, I know, um, I know for a fact that they are looking for some some pay jobs, you know, on a bigger right, scale right. too. Um, so, but that's I think I think that's an interesting dichotomy. That that's that's one of the best ways to get into the business, you know, is to just you know what I'll do that. And I did that with Mister Die. I probably didn't get a paycheck for a couple of years, just just doing whatever I could to get into the business. So. But I was getting a master's degree, you know, at the same time for Mr. Die. Yeah, right. 
invaluable. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah. going back, going back to that, um, I just read the press release recently about a place called Holiday Farms in Zionsville, Indiana, which is it's the marketing material says it's a Pete Dye and Alice Dye golf course, and you're involved in that project. Can we assume that this is going to be the last project that will have Pete Dye's name on it? Is that how you're look, thinking about it? I don't know that. Uh, I really don't know if it's his last, but, um, you know, Pete, Pete, Mr. Dye and I have worked on that project since 93, believe it okay. or not. That's a, really? I didn't that's know that. A fa- yeah. yeah, that's a family farm that is in Alice's family. So that's probably where Alice got mentioned, but she's not going to be a designer of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's she's told me that since that. So that's a misprint. Can you believe in a newspaper would have a misprint of something wrong? <laughs> so she just kind of said, where'd that come from? I said, I don't know. And and usually at this stage, it uh, Mr. and Mrs. Dye will say, hey, this is going to be a, uh, a Pete Dye, Tim Liddy co-design. But I always tell the owner, you call it whatever you want. You know, uh, you can put Pete Dye on the billboard and put Tim Liddy, you know, down below or you could. You know, every owner is different. Every owner's some owners, uh, Nemec Colin says, no, we want to call this a Pete Dye, Tim Letty golf course. Others say, okay, I got it. And then, you know, they just advertise it as a Pete Dye golf course. I get it. You know, I've, I've remodeled courses of Peter Thompson, of Arnold Palmer, and Pete Dye. What do you think they call it? They, you know, Peter Thompson still mentioned that the Dukes, uh, you know, the Palmer course I remodeled at, at Marshwood, they still call it a Palmer course. I get it, uh, and and when you do something when you don't care about who gets credit for it, it's all good. You know, you you get a better product. So it's just kind of, kind of the business. Yeah, I understand that. Um, what? So are you going back to some of your original plans that you? Uh, I presume you drew, you know, many yeah, years ago yeah. and working off those. Yeah. Not yep, that you yeah. work off plans, but you have some ideas <laughs> yeah. that date back. Yeah. yeah. That must be and, interesting you know, to, with, to pull those out of the drawer and go back and kind of reminisce a, about those discussions and the strategy. It was amazing that that I had them again. Ninety three, you think ninety three, and that's when I officially started my my business. And it, it's the first tube of drawings in my file. Wow! It's my very. It was the very first tube that I kept. For some reason, I kept those those plans. And again, they're just sketches and routings and uh, so forth. But again, it's Alice's family that owns that property. So it's important. And it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of property. So, Yeah, and there's a sentimental uh, attachment to this design as well. Exactly. 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 So I think, you know, they'll promote it. And, and PB Dye, one of Pete's sons, will be involved to represent Pete's side as uh-huh. well. But once again... Um, you know, it'll probably be unofficially a, a co-design, but you, you know how developers are. They're going to call it whatever they yeah. want. So How's how's PB doing? Good, good. Uh, I don't know him that well, uh, but I, I'm looking forward to maybe getting to know him a little better on this project. Yeah, that'll be, that'll so, be cool. So do you feel like with yeah. this particular project, do you feel because of, of how early you, it was one of your first things you did with Pete and from it's, it's older, and do you feel like a is it more special to you to try to like honor the way you two were thinking in 1993? Cause it's impossible that it's possible that you might have approached it differently in 2018. If you were starting this project now. Um, I don't know. I just kind of went through that. I'm, uh, I'm doing a kind of a three, 
three golf hole remodel in Naples for Gray Oaks, three golf courses, and I'm trying to make all three distinctive. One was more of a, a bit of a McKenzie style, and then I just finished the one in a die style, and the next one should be more of a raw style. But um, so, so I brought a couple of, of guys that that you know I've known for 20 years. I hate to say it that we've worked with with Pete, and we, you know, we we kind of embell. I think we kind of put our love of Pete into this golf course. I mean, it really shows to me. It looks like Pete was there. This again is in Naples. Uh, so I've just done that, and um, because there's so much Pete Dye work in Indiana, I think it it we need to do something a bit different, right? Something that I don't know uh, exactly what that is yet, but I think it needs to be a bit different. It needs to have the dye vocabulary, but but different. There is, you know, there's a half a dozen Pete Dye courses in in the Indianapolis area, yeah. so. Uh, it's a challenge to make them different and at the same time, Pete, you know, look like Mr. Die. As we begin to wind down here, Tim, um, I'm going to ask you a few questions. If you've heard the podcast, you've heard this question before, uh, not counting the courses you and Pete have been on together or your own. What, what have you seen out there that you think is the best modern golf course courses built in the last 20, 25 years or so? Well, I think Sand Hills is a, has been a great example for where golf can go. If it wasn't so, so damn far away in private. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, besides yeah, that. Yeah, other than that, it's great. <laughs> and you like you like uh, that. What about it uh-huh. specifically do you think is so great? It's just that it's natural. And, you know, you, you mentioned the, the article that I wrote in Lanks. I think, it, you know, it promotes all those aspects. You know, the turf, mm-hmm. the, the, nat- the natural part of it, and the beauty of it, and the thought behind it. You know, it's got great levels of thought as you play it. So Sand, um, Sand Hills so, has gotten a few votes on the podcast, so it's it's the leader in the clubhouse oh, right now. Okay. Yeah, well, that's ex- that's right. to be expected. Um, now, when you you know TPC, I could argue all day about that, but uh, uh, anyway, and we we've already discussed it. Well, you're just you're almost asking my questions for me. Other than <laughs> okay. we talked about the, the sawgrass being, uh, I said it, I thought it was underrated, so we'll, we'll eliminate that from the category since we've addressed it. But what? What do you think is the most underrated Pete Dye golf course, or even Pete Dye Tim Liddy golf course? Oh my! Oh my! Um, Ford Plantation is is very unique, uh, but I probably would always go back to uh, Colleton River Club. I think it, and why I love it so much is because it. I think it's it's almost one of the pinnacle pieces of Pete Dye's sculptural vocabulary. Uh, when you start sculpting a golf course, there's always the question, and, and Mr. Dye and I would always look at each other. He'd say, you know, if we start doing this, whatever we're doing, you know, if we start sculpting, where are we going to stop? You know, are, you just got to keep going or you're going to, you know, like Whistling Straits, you never, they didn't stop, right? They just kept going. You couldn't stop to get that double dimension and make it look like Dune. So once you you don't know how scary it is to stand on 200 acres and you, you know, you do a couple bunkers and a couple rolls and you go, you know, if we do this, we, we got to keep going. <laughs> so, um, I think Colleton, and again, that's where the knuckle bucket really came into vogue for Mr. Die is a great pinnacle of, of that sculptural quality that, that he, that he developed from scratch. So I love Colleton, especially the back nine. And you recently went back there and, and did some touch up work there and, and Ford Plantation. 
that's right that's right ford plantation and is a, is a great sleeper. place too it's yeah, yeah it's fantastic the first night is kind of it's like low country golf inland you know very reminiscent of kind of harbor town look that pete dye aesthetic and then you get out in this almost in it's it's an island out in the out mm-hmm. in the swamp old rice patties i believe and it's just there's nothing else like it in, in the southeast you know the low country is just so beautiful so that's you know that's such a big part of what what i'm saying you know We've done some great work in the Midwest. You know, I've worked in Des Moines a lot. I worked in, uh, you know, Indiana all over the place. Uh, worked in Baltimore with Pete. You know, those are all great. But again, you put the low country in the background and it's it's breathtaking. It might be the area of the country where your work and Pete Dye's work shines the best because it's so the land is beautiful and yet it's so flat and you have to develop relief to give a golf course interest in playability and visual interest and those courses that that you've been involved with down there have so much character in the ground where everything else almost that's built down there doesn't is there's such a stark contrast between good low country golf and average low country golf right and and, you know it comes to the textures and the views and but you know the live oak trees. It's it's just a great it's a great palace. Special, I mean, yeah. Um, who's the best shaper you've ever seen? Oh, there's no, they're all good. I would say they're all good. And uh, my job is to make them better. So when you're on a sitting on a machine, you can't see everything. And you know, a good shaper probably is is more of someone who will understand. Hey, come here and look at. This is what I see. What do you think? So it's more of an attitude to be a good shaper than it is uh, to say you're a shaper. And I, you know, shapers are an architect, right? I mean, come on, they're, they're a part of the team. So a good shaper, you know, when he's got four hours of, of, of downtime, he's going to go play golf. He loves the game. He's got that same passion for golf than we all do. And, you know, uh, Kyle France has always had that passion. I think Kai Golby is, is, is really, really good. Um, uh, you know, Dave and Dave Axlin, I, I give Dave Axlin, this is a story, I don't know how much time you got, but this is a story that, that I'd like to test and see if it's true. But I, I really feel like at Sand Hills, the very first eroded looking bunker, Dave Axlin went over to the side of a golf hole and he grabbed some, harvested something, some kind of, you know, fescue grass or whatever, and he, and he, he brought it over and he plopped it in the middle of a bunker and, you know, Bill Corr being the, the genius that he is probably saw it and went, that looks great, you know, but, but I think that's, you know, I think that started this whole eroded, this beautiful eroded looking bunker uh, trend and what, how important that is, I don't know, but I'm just saying, I think it's an interesting fact and I've talked to Dave about it and uh, you know, whether it's, whether that's the very first one, I'm not sure. He, he wouldn't admit but, it anyway, would he? <laughs> oh, I think he'd tell you the story. Uh-huh. But but uh, but yeah, you know, other guys were, other guys latched onto it very quickly. So it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Did you ever work with uh, David Postlethwaite? I did not. He was kind of just like Bobby Weed and David and what a few others. They kind of were before me. Uh, I've worked with Pete since 93 or, yeah, 93, 92. Yeah. So, what, 28 years? So these guys were, you know, Pete's been doing it 50. So, yeah. 
<laughs> so these these guys were before right. me. Uh, last question: What is up with the five-three-four uh, finish that we see so often in Pete Dyke golf courses? <laughs> it's, it's not an accident, right? Well, I it's a, it's a great way of testing all your shots. Uh, so it's uh, and Donald Ross did it a lot, and I think of that influenced Pete. You know, Pete played a lot of great golf courses as a young man and, and early in his life and won the Indiana Amateur. And that get, that helped it form, you know, what what's good golf and what's bad. So, you know, there's that functionality to all his designs we've talked about. So he, with a three and a, you know, a three going usually a different direction and a five and a four. And it makes for an exciting finish in tournament golf, that's for sure. So that's, that's you want that variety at the end. You don't want four, four, four. No, I guess not. It's, <laughs> but it's a, it's definitely a trademark kind of, I guess. And, yeah. and you know, and, yeah. and they are exciting. I mean, I think Pete Dye talk about or underrated things. Pete Dye is an underrated architect. I mean, for all the accolades he gets, I don't, I don't think that the full history of his importance and influence has been really understood or cataloged yet. It'll take years to digest the the well, Pete Dye era. Yeah. Maybe we've made a good start today. I hope so. There's no better source uh, than than you, Tim Liddy. Uh, <laughs> there's more to mine there. This was fun. Did you have fun? Yeah, I appreciate it, Derek. Hope I hope I came across okay. Oh, beautifully. This is going to be a, a good one. I think people really enjoy it. You did great. Thanks, Derek. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for making the time and uh, the best of luck. Keep, stay busy and uh, stay warm. Enjoy the views. The dolphins. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I can help, Derek, just let me know. Okay, okay? I appreciate it. Take care. You got it. Tim is a great guy to talk to. One of the things that makes him so interesting, aside from his experience, is that he's a realist. Maybe that's his Indiana Midwestern upbringing, but it seems like he doesn't have time for a lot of BS. He's very matter-of-fact. He's got a good sense of humor, but he's matter very matter-of-fact, and he sees the world of golf and golf business very clear-eyed. I'm like... Yeah, you know, we need more community golf courses, low-budget golf where everybody can just come out and play and hit it around and have a good time and architects who need to design this way. And he's like, I think his point was, yeah, but those jobs don't pay and architects need to eat too. So we're at a little bit of an impasse. It sounds great, but it's maybe not a viable path going forward. So we still have some work to do on that front. I also thought his comments on the use of the bulldozer and what a bulldozer can do were interesting. We've been talking a lot about machinery and how machinery influences design and shapes. And he put a number on it. He said a bulldozer can produce about a 10% grade, which is somewhere in between a hard edge and a soft edge, which both look natural, whereas a bulldozer kind of hits that middle ground that looks unnatural. And we saw plenty of that happening in the 80s and 90s and 1970s. The little bit about Amos Jones, the superintendent who uh, top-dressed with a certain type of machine. I think we know what golf course that was. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's talking about Pinehurst number 2. Pete Dice told the story, maybe not about Amos Jones particularly, but about how those greens were top-dressed and top-dressed and top-dressed and how the middle of those greens rose and rose and rose. And Donald Ross wouldn't recognize this iconic form of the Pinehurst number 2 greens that we see now. But I think there's a fair amount of scholarship on that. I'm a, so I'm assuming that that's the golf course, Pioneer's number two, that Tim didn't want to put a name on. And finally, I, I thought it was interesting, his comments about the American Society of, of Golf Course Architects. He, <laughs> he was kind of beating me up for going off on them. And maybe I should cut him a little bit of slack if, if the purpose of the society is really just for the architects to get together and collaborate and talk about 
what they're working on and what they've learned and share stories and have drinks, play a little golf, then I've got no problem with that. But I do think that if the point is, and I'm not saying that this was Tim's point, but I do think that if the point is we expect too much of them if we think that they can affect change, I think that's almost an abdication of responsibility. The architects, after all, are the ones that are designing golf courses. They are building the golf courses. They have tremendous amount of influence. And not to say that they shouldn't collaborate and swap stories and give each other tips and advice. And, and they have the right to do whatever they want and talk about whatever they want when they get together. But I would hope that they are seriously discussing where golf is going in the future and acting as a little bit of a check and balance on each other because they have, I'm, in my opinion, a lot more influence than maybe Tim was letting on. But Tim was outstanding. I thought that was a very meaningful conversation. I want to thank him for coming on. Thank you all for listening. You know where to find me on social media. I'm at Feed the Ball on Twitter and on Instagram. Visit me at feedtheball.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. Go to those same platforms and leave a rating or a comment. I love the comments. Once again, as always, thank you to the Sundogs. Thank you all again, and we'll see you next time. 